Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta young adult author Nicole D. Collier explores the middle school mind of a child determined to conquer her shyness. Later this hour, we'll hear about her new heartfelt novel, Just Right Jillian. Plus, speaking of the arts, The next in our ongoing series of artists in their own words, today featuring Rose Ann Barron. First, Kiefer Sutherland has performed in 11 number one box office hits. He won a Golden Globe and Emmy for his role as Jack Bauer in the hit TV series 24. Then, in 2016, he decided to switch gears and pursue a country music career. His debut country music recording, Down in a Hole, was well-received, described as a compelling, truth-telling album. Now, Sutherland has released his third studio album, Bloor Street, And he's performing in Atlanta at Eddie's Attic Indicator on March 17th, when City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes recently caught up with Sutherland. He explained why he wanted to dive into the world of country music. You know, it was a combination of things. Uh, It wasn't a plan. I had been writing a few songs and playing them with a bunch of friends of mine, and we kind of had a rule that we, as long as we played 50 miles outside of Los Angeles, <laughs> we would get together and do that. And a, a friend of mine, Jude Cole, who's an extraordinary artist, uh, heard a couple of the songs and said he wanted to record them, and and we did. And I loved the way that he made them sound, and so we put together the album and released that. And the thing that I hadn't counted on uh, was kind of discovering how much I love touring. Oh. And that was what was really responsible for the second and the third record. Even though I was doing a television show called Designated Survivor for three years, in that three years, we still managed to play 500 shows. Wow. It's been a commitment, but I wouldn't have traded a day of it. Uh, it's been one of the great experiences that I've had just as, as a person with my friends and, and as As an artist, it's been one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had. That is so cool. And you mentioned that you have fallen in love with being on tour and performing. What was it like performing for the first time your own music in front of a live audience? Did you ever feel nervous or more vulnerable? I think I always feel a little bit of nervousness, and that doesn't change if I'm doing a play or if I'm I'm working on a television show or a film. I am a large subscriber to the idea that if it doesn't make you a little nervous, you probably shouldn't be doing it, (laughs) you know, but having said that, I did feel that a a 40 year career in film and television and, and as an actor on stage, that that would have some real benefits when it came to playing the concerts. And I was very wrong. (laughs) My miscalculation was that as an actor, you've always got kind of this character that is the bridge between you and an audience. And when you're playing songs that you've written and songs that I've written are songs from my own personal experiences in my life, that barrier is gone and you feel much more vulnerable 
And so it took me a minute to get used to kind of being that open after spending 35 years of being really guarded and trying to be private. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm telling very intimate stories about my own life in front of 500 people who I don't know. Having said that, the people that we got to play for have been so generous and amazing that there are moments I wrote a song about the passing of my mother called Saskatchewan and I was playing that song and in the audience I saw a woman put her arm around her friend and kind of hold her and I realized that that young person was dealing with something very similar and I kind of made eye contact with them as I was singing and she smiled and for like a brief moment uh, singing this song is hard for me because I miss my mom and, and, and losing her was a very big moment in my life. And it clearly was for this young person. And for a moment, I felt less alone, you know, that I was kind of, I was going through that kind of loss with this person in the audience, even though that they're a complete stranger. And those kinds of shared moments are unlike anything else I've experienced. And I have found them to be profoundly moving for me. And I have to believe uh, that they have been for, for people in the audience as well. Oh, thank you for sharing. That's a beautiful story of connection. Yeah. So when I was diving into my Kiefer Sutherland research and learning things about you that I had never known before, uh-huh. were you a professional rodeo rider? I was. I was a team roper. I rodeoed from 1992 all the way to the beginning of when I started a show called 24. And then 24 just took over my life. But up until that point, I had a small cattle farm in the central coast in California, about 3,000 acres. And the herd at its peak was kind of running about 1,000 head with mama cows and calves. And then uh, it was a lot of work. And I, I rodeoed with a guy named John English. He and I ran that farm together as well. So actually, it was one of the most kind of enjoyable times in my life because, you know, he'd get in the truck with a bunch of cowboys and haul some horses from town to town. It's like we were in our own little band. And yeah, so for for 10 years I did it. I made it to the USTRC National Finals in 94 and 96 and won a couple rodeos over over those years. And uh, so, yeah, it was was just a really wonderful time. And it was an amazing way to see the country. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in New York and I spent some time in Chicago and I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles. But the rest of the country was a real mystery to me. Being able to go, you know, from Berlin, New Mexico, to Las Cruces, to to Gallup, and from town to town in, in New Mexico and explore via rodeos the kind of inner workings of America was fascinating. And I enjoyed it immensely and realized that we've got a lot more in common as people across the country than I think we give ourselves credit for. I was always impressed by how helpful I found people to be, you know, if if your truck broke down or if a piece of equipment for your horse wasn't functioning properly, how, how many cowboys would be ready there to hand you theirs. It made me feel a kind of passion for the country that, that I certainly didn't share before. And, uh, and we'll always look back on those, that kind of decade of touring the country, doing something completely different, how much I enjoyed that. Do you find that that experience influences your love of country music? It it was my introduction to it. Mm. I certainly, you know, I grew up in Toronto, Canada. I certainly did not grow up listening to country music. I think I used to make a joke that I was probably the only one in kindergarten who had an Aerosmith t-shirt given to me by my brother. So (laughs) I I was rock and roll to the marrow of my bones. But all of a sudden I found myself traveling around with these cowboys and they were listening to Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, Willie Nelson, kind of all of the original outlaw country guys. Yeah. And they were writing these songs in the first person narrative. So, you know, I, I'm a huge Led Zeppelin fan, but, you know, I couldn't tell you what track one off of Led Zeppelin four, which is Black Dog. I couldn't tell you what that song means particularly. But when I listened to Johnny Cash sing A Boy Named Sue, I know exactly what he's singing about. It's a story. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's what has been attractive to me about acting is telling stories. And I just discovered this kind of genre of music that was really about first-person narrative storytelling. And that just was so exciting, uh, not only as a listener, but also someone who played guitar 
to start dabbling in kind of writing first-person narrative stories about my life, my perceptions, my experiences, and trying to put that down in a cohesive three-minute thought was a great challenge. And um, it really wasn't until, you know, 2016 that I felt I had enough of those songs, songs that I had worked with Jude Cole on, that I felt were worth somebody's time to listen to. And then, Mm -hmm. and here we are now. Well, well done. You mentioned growing up in Toronto with your little Aerosmith t-shirt on. Yeah. Why did you name the album After a Road in Toronto? Well, I was shooting Designated Survivor in Toronto, Canada, and that's where I grew up. And I was walking to the main intersection. So Bloor Street runs east-west through Toronto, and Young Street runs north-south. And and, and that intersection is the main intersection in Toronto, Canada. Mm. And I was looking at the four corners waiting for the light, and I realized all my firsts happened here. Like the first job I ever had was in the food court at the Hudson Bay Center on the northeast corner. Uh, The first time I ever kind of had a meaningful kiss with a girl was in front of the Bloor Street subway station. You know, the first time I ever busked with a guitar and my case open for money was on one of those corners as well. So, you know, you get to this point in life at my age, you kind of have a tendency to get nostalgic and look back on things in a kind of really kind of sweet way. And I just thought I really wanted to write a song about not only the city that I grew up in and how fortunate I felt I was to grow up in Toronto and go to school there, but also the time. You know, I was 11 years old, I guess, in 1976, 77, and it was not unnormal for an 11-year-old and his friends to be on the subway without a parent. If I saw an 11-year-old on a subway now, I, I would immediately go up to that child and ask what was wrong. But back then, we had a real freedom, and there was something so exciting about getting on a subway and going down to where all the adults were doing whatever they were doing and kind of feeling like you were part of it. And so I think I was very lucky about not only where I grew up, but when I grew up. Walking down Blue Street I make the right on young This old town And I've gone round for round But this is where I'm from Feel the wind coming off the lake It cuts right to the bone A crooked smile grows on my face Cause now I know I'm home She whispers I just felt for a lot of the songs that are in fact memories That was a perfect one to lead off on And so it became the first track of the album and, and 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 I just felt it was a perfect title for the album because all of the memories kind of began somewhere and, and they started in Toronto, Canada. That's fantastic. Well, you mentioned that the format of country is deeply personal. Would you mind talking a little bit about your song, County Jailgate? Certainly no secret. I've made some mistakes in my life and some of them are were significant. And I paid for some of those mistakes in a pretty significant way. And I've been to jail more than a few times, but there was one time I went for about three months. And it was an opportunity to kind of not only take stock in why is this happening and what did I do to kind of put myself in this position and learn from this so I don't ever do that again. There was certainly that moment that I've experienced in jail. But I also just realized that there's nothing about this experience that is cool or exciting or interesting. There's nothing good about it. And I was watching a movie and at the opening credit sequence, a man was getting out of prison and they did a really good job with the sound effects as the gate was opening the screeching sound of the prison doors. And I had a visceral reaction to it. And I turned the TV off and I said to myself, you know, there's ain't no sound I've learned more to hate than the sound of the county jail gate. And, you know, light bulbs went off and I just went, well, I'm going to sit and write that. And I picked up a guitar and I did. Two tons of steel grinding on the wheels. It's a sound you'll never mistake. As the buzzer rings, you're going to feel the sting. As they open the county jail gate Once you're inside There's no place to hide And you're left to your 
it's in your face And there ain't no sound I've learned more to hate Than the sound of the county jail gate County jail gate And what I really wanted to convey in the song is just, you know, a couple poor choices. And, and you can be wasting time like you wouldn't believe. And when you look back on one's life, the most precious thing we have is time. And so to waste it in such a stupid way was something that left a real mark on me and I think changed me as a person in many ways. And, and so I wanted to write a song that expressed that and talked about it for the Wasted times, what's on my mind, because this ain't no way to live, is one of the lines in the song. And I just really wanted to, if I was going to share that with anybody, that idea, that was what I wanted to say. So if I can encourage you to avoid going to jail, let me be the one to do it. You heard them, people. Good words to live by, for sure. I heard you wrote the song Lean Into Me about a person in your life that has always been there for you. How do you hope this song resonates with others? I wrote a lot of these songs during the pandemic and lean into me is one of them. And I have to say, looking around during the pandemic, I had friends that got very sick. I had a couple people that have passed away from COVID and I couldn't get over how grateful I was that my family was safe and that how grateful I was that not only were my friends safe, but how lucky I was to have my friends and how lucky I was to have had a career that's allowed me to do something I love for my whole life, and, and how nice it was that I had a house where I had some room, and, and I could certainly get through this pandemic better than most, and, and I was acutely aware of how lucky I am. And so a lot of the songs that I wrote are really, really reflective of that, songs like So Full of Love, Two Stepping in Time, and Lean Into Me were songs that are so much more positive than anything that I'd written before. I mean, my favorite sense of humor is sarcasm. I am pessimistic. <laughs> so if, if you had told me four years ago I was going to write these songs, I would have laughed at you. But the truth is, I, I did feel this kind of overwhelming sense of gratitude and grace. And, and I did start writing things that were just maybe uncharacteristic of me. And Lean Into Me is certainly one of those songs. And I wrote it because through my whole life, I've had these amazing friends and family that I've been able to lean into when I've been going through a difficult time or when I've had something really nice happen. I've had friends to lean into. And I wrote this song as a conscious effort. Now it's time for me to be there for other people to lean into as well. So it hasn't gone the way you want it. It really ever does. Be who you are and flaunt it like yesterday never was. Close your eyes and find some faith That's all that is required Let me be the spark So you can be the fire And lean into me I won't let you fall Just lean into me And so the song is really as simple as that And it's a reminder to anybody that we need each other and hopefully everybody out there has someone to lean into. Mm, Kiefer, so much heart, so much heart. <laughs> Can you share a little bit about what the performance at Eddie's Attic will be like? It's billed as you with friends. Who will be joining you? So I'm going to start the show out. It's just going to be me and an acoustic guitar. And then there's a wonderful guitar player by the name of Mark Copley, originally from Boston, Massachusetts, but really plays out of New York City. He's going to join me, and he's an extraordinary player. I mean, really something to behold, uh, just to hear and watch play is just a real pleasure. And then a dear, dear friend of mine, Rocco DeLuca, is going to play pedal steel. I know halfway through the show, he'll come out. You know, and, and then the songs are going to be songs from the three records, from the three albums. And I, you know, I, I do spend time explaining what I was going through and why I wrote this song and why I think it might matter to you or raise a glass, have a, have a sip of whiskey, tell a story, play a song. And I don't think the night's going to be any more complicated than that. I love it. You are obviously a very, very good storyteller, a perfect match for country music. Well, thank you. And I know you haven't hung up your hat with acting, and I've heard that in April there's a new Showtime TV series coming out. Could we talk about that for a moment? 
Yeah, there's a few things. So I was thrilled to be a part of a, a limited series production called The First Lady with Viola Davis, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Gillian Anderson. And it chronicles the lives of three first ladies and not only how they changed the office of the first lady, but the profound effect they had on their presidential husbands. And so uh, Michelle Pfeiffer plays Betty Ford. Viola Davis plays Michelle Obama. And Gillian Anderson plays Eleanor Roosevelt. And I play Franklin Roosevelt to her Eleanor. And that comes out in early April which I'm very excited about. I have a film with Chris Pine and Ben Foster called The Contractor, which comes out April 1st. And then I start a series for Showtime in the middle of May called Rabbit Hole, Mm. which I'm very excited about. And we're in the process of just finishing up casting and and we will start shooting uh, sooner than I know it, for (laughs) sure. What is Rabbit Hole going to be about? Rabbit Hole centers around a character who's very involved in big business espionage, and his company is used to kind of maybe spread false information about one company to the advantage of another company. And one of the operations that he's involved with goes terribly wrong, and his world starts to unravel in hours. And he has to figure out who's behind it and how he's going to survive it, and it becomes... It's really a cat and mouse type thriller, and the stakes are life and death. Can't get more dramatic than that, can you? <laughs> Cannot. Cannot, <laughs> for sure. Very intriguing. Kiefer, thank you so much for taking the time to share your stories and so much of your heart with us. Very much looking forward to the show. Oh, thank you. And just wish you all of the best in your multiple endeavors. You're very, very generous. Thank you so much. And I hope we do get to see you all soon. And the first lady uh, we actually shot in Atlanta. So I'd be very glad to get back there and very excited to play. And thanks for taking the time to talk with me and and have a great, great uh, rest of your day. Actor and country music artist Kiefer Sutherland. His new album is Bloor Street. Kiefer Sutherland is performing at Eddie's Attic on March 17th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, Atlanta author Nicole D. Collier explores the middle school mind in her new heartfelt novel, Just Right Jillian. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Grammy said I'd grow out of my shyness, but since she left, it's only gotten worse. Those thoughts are conveyed by Jillian, the fifth grader and title character of the new book, Just Right Jillian, by Nicole D. Collier. The Atlanta author describes her debut novel as a love letter to shy children. She joins us now via Zoom. Nicole D. Collier, welcome to City Lights. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Would you introduce us to Jillian and her world as we begin the story? Yes. So Jillian is a super smart, 
but super shy fifth grader. And she has made a promise to her Grammy that she will believe in herself and that she will be more confident in herself. And as we begin, we start to see just how that plays out in her life. She really wants to do her best and speak up, but she's really having a hard time right up until the time she gets the opportunity to put this new promise to the test. Mm. And I admire the way uh, you do not race with the pace here. I mean, there are several points at which we think, aha, Jillian <laughs> is going to speak. We're going to see this giant leap she takes, but she doesn't. We are made to feel her pain. You know, I, I really wanted to take my time with that because I know exactly what that pain feels like. And it's, there's no leap. <laughs> it's, a, it's definitely a, a, a gradual coming to gather your courage um, to be able to, to break free of that. So I pray that you yourself were a very shy child. Yes. And I would say that continued through much of my adulthood, probably until very recently, <laughs> actually. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, Jillian is vividly drawn. What helped you write from a 10-year-old's point of view? Oh, thank you so much. I would say two things helped me with that. One, I used to teach elementary school myself. I taught fourth grade for about five years and spent a little bit of time also with fifth graders. Um, and so I really loved and cherished all of that time and I remember them. <laughs> they leave an impression on you when you're able to spend hours a day with students over the course of years. But then also so much of Jillian's struggle was my own and I kept that with me for all of these years. Uh, so I was able to really draw on uh, my teaching experience and remembering the students and my own experience and remembering that pain. Hmm. Where did you teach? Um, actually, I taught in Clayton County Schools where I taught fourth grade. And then I went on to Atlanta Public Schools where I was a model teacher leader. So I worked with several different schools in that role. Ah. Atlanta Public Schools holds our license, so we have a long-standing connection and take a lot of pride in that. Jillian's mm -hmm. teacher, Miss Warren, is a pivotal character in the story. Jillian describes her as younger, like a big sister <laughs> or cool auntie. Is she based on you? <laughs> I won't give myself that much credit, but I did want her to be, I was a young teacher, but I did want, you know, to just kind of show someone that I felt kids could relate to. Um, and so that seems to be, they always think that adults are old. <laughs> so I, I wanted someone that they, maybe they would see her as a little bit younger. <laughs> yeah. And she's got those cool glasses she wears too, sparkly gold. Mm -hmm. In addition to the challenge of overcoming shyness, this story focuses on grief. Jillian mm. adored her Grammy, who was wise and vibrant, dynamic. Would you tell us about Grammy's role in Julian's story? Well, that's such a lovely question. So Grammy has already passed away by the time we get to know Jillian. And as a matter of fact, she's coming up on the one year anniversary of her passing. Um, but Grammy is the person who taught Jillian how to weave. And Grammy later on, as her health started to decline, moved in with Jillian. But throughout the years, Grammy was always this like you say, vibrant, um, very alive person, the type of person who makes doctors believe that 
she can't even hear because she doesn't want to be bothered at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but she was always willing to um, allow Jillian to be herself while pushing her to become even more of herself, which I think is always that struggle while really honoring the, the child as they are while seeing the potential for who they can be. So she really served that role, even though she wasn't there during this part of Jillian's story. Grammy was a weaver, an art she passed on to Jillian. Would you talk about the role of weaving in the narrative? Oh, that's interesting. I think with the weaving in particular, we really start to see you know, as the story opens, Jillian actually isn't weaving. She hasn't been weaving. And part of that is because the last time she saw her grandmother, she had actually given her a, a present that she weaved. And so she, you know, it kind of, I guess, made her a little bit uh, shy to go back dealing with that grief and, you know, kind of holding on to that memory. Here's my grandmother who taught me and then, you know, the last thing I made was for her. So maybe that's the end of it. Um, but as she starts to come back to herself, Jillian, she also starts to come back to weaving, which is also a part of herself. There's even a point where her mother, you know, is really pushing her to go back and says, we all have our thing. Your dad has his thing. He plays music. I have my thing. I write and teach. You have your thing, but you aren't doing it. So you aren't expressing yourself fully. And so that's, you know, part of what's giving you a hard time right now. So she really pushes her to go back to one of those key parts of herself, that weaving, that self-expression, which I think is important. And when she finally does resume weaving, she feels like she's flying and she's not afraid to take chances and she chooses vibrant colors. It's, it's all a wonderful tribute to what Grammy passed on to her. You mentioned that Jillian's dad has his music. Nicole, you said this book is a love letter to shy children. I think on a certain level, it's also a love letter to Lenny Kravitz. Is that fair? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a love letter to a lot of things, a lot of people. You know, Jillian is also clearly a daddy's girl and love letter to teachers in some way. But yes, uh, Lenny Kravitz definitely plays a role. <laughs> <laughs> he is the soundtrack to Just Right, Jillian, and, and a very good one, I should add. Thank you. <laughs> Eggs and unhatched chickens are central to this story. How does studying their development illustrate the overarching theme of Just Right, Jillian? It's such a good question. And I have to say that in early drafts, the eggs were not there at all, which is actually hard to picture now. Yeah. <laughs> but the truth is, I knew that the story was kind of missing an anchor. And as I really started to mine my life for examples or, you know, what could be this centering point, I remembered that when I taught fourth grade, we hatched chickens and it was such a big deal. The kids loved it. We studied the whole life cycle and all of those things. And it just hit me that this is the perfect metaphor for Jillian's journey, really from the beginning when we can't count all of our chickens before they hatch <laughs> to <laughs> the struggle that, you know, they have just to stay alive, honestly, on as they are uh, developing on the inside. And then that next struggle to break free of their shells and how they really have to, they have to engage in the struggle. And th that's a part of their lives. And, you know, just really mirroring those two things came together, but only after some deep reflection. <laughs> well, I think it was the yeah. ideal metaphor. You arrived at the perfect choice there. Thank you. If you are just joining us, 
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is Atlanta author Nicole D. Collier. Her new middle grade novel, Just Right Jillian, tells the story of fifth grader Jillian and her path to overcoming shyness. Though she is shy, Jillian does have friends. Marquez is a great guy. Why is he important to Jillian's story? I'm glad you asked about Marquez because there are a couple of things that I I really want to highlight about him. You know, Marquez is very multifaceted. All the kids are, but he really started off as a compilation of young boys that I've taught. You know, we sometimes tend to see, especially uh, boys who have a sense of humor as the class clown and dismiss them out of hand. But Marquez really shows us that you can be funny and be a deep thinker and a loyal friend. And so with Jillian and Marquez, they really did have a very close bond and Marquez was the one who was always willing to tell her the truth. So he may have a ready smile, he may have a joke out there for everyone else, but in the private times when it's just he and Jillian speaking with each other, he was going to let her know, hey, we all saw you choke. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to tell her like it is, but he's also going to be there to help show her other things that she can do to overcome her shyness. In this case, he really wanted her to train her heart. You know, Marquez was a a reader and he's always wanting you to know that the sports figures in history and all of the famous people, they had to have big hearts and you have a big heart too, Jillian, and here's how you train it. So I think that's how they they really work together. What a guy. (laughs) Can you just touch on some of the steps Jillian takes to overcome her shyness. Hmm. Sassy glasses may be the first example. Oh, yes. So first of all, we have to say that Jillian was not even letting anyone know that she couldn't see clearly. So that's the first step, just even getting to the point where it happened to come out that she needed assistance seeing. And then finally going to go to the eye doctor, but seeing these perfect glasses, these red cheerful glasses, but not really having the courage to then Uh, say, mom, these are the ones I want and kind of letting it it fall to mom. But then later on, once we get past that hump, now just the steps of really being able to participate in this big competition called the mind bender. You know, she has to first agree that she's going to participate. So that takes a little bit of courage. (laughs) And then just going through the rounds, knowing that the the crowds get bigger and bigger you know really having to dig deep each time to overcome her fears she loves bright colors i have to tell you nicole i would not have been a cool fifth grader in this class because i share jillian's distaste for bland colors or no colors but Eventually, she realizes the joy of being her own self and choosing her own style. Yes. You know, even that whole idea of picking the colors that you want, it's kind of amazing that, you know, kids do, they really do feel like they have to be little conformists. You know, they have to blend in 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 order not to stick out when the truth is, you know, as Jillian comes to realize, it's not that she wants to stick out. She just wants to be herself. And it just so happens that in this sea of likeness or beige in this case, wearing a bright color, her favorite color, purple, makes you be different. Um, And so really, how do you come to grips with the fact that you're not trying to stand out, you're just trying to be yourself is a major lesson that she also has to learn. Purple is my favorite color. One more thing, Jillian, and I share. (laughs) Me too. Yay. 
We see the extent of Jillian's transformation with her response to Marquez about the real champions in history. Would you describe that conversation? Yes. So earlier, you know, Marquez talks about the the champions in history and the fact that they overcame the odds. But Jillian has a chance to reflect and really come back and say, you know, it's really more about the fact that they were willing to try in the first place. You know, that's something that's really important to me as as a human, as an author, um, and as someone who wants kids to know, um, and adults, that it isn't always the outcome, that you can't always control what happens on the other side, but your heart and your courage and your willingness to go after what's important to you is the key. That's the part that's up to you. Um, So that's what she came to. And Marquez is reading all those biographies and about histories, has now finally made the impression on Jillian that uh, John Lewis wouldn't have said the champions are the winners. He would have said the champions are those who try. I know that teachers can be very, very fervent about their dedication to specific grade levels. My son had a marvelous third grade teacher who would not dream of teaching anything, but they offered her a promotion. Don't you want to work with older kids? Nope. Third grade was it. (laughs) My daughter-in-law has been teaching middle school for 12 years, and she too is so committed to middle school age student. The end of this story is so uplifting, Nicole. I was hoping you'd talk about why you especially write for middle school age students. So it's that special time where you know, kids are really starting to discover who they are and who they'd like to be and really trying to understand and fill that gap. And it's such a special time, whether you're teaching that age or writing for that age, to be a part of that growth and development. I just love that time. I I love the stories that the kids are telling each other, telling themselves (laughs) and and exploring about themselves. I just just really love that age and that, that period of life. And this is ages 8 to 12 or 4th through 6th grade. Is that what it would be? Yeah, I think four through six is the the, the the ideal age. It's eight to 12, which kind of overlaps that a little bit, but that's a four through six is probably a sweet spot or third through six. <laughs> In your acknowledgments, the first person mentioned is the critically acclaimed author of adult fiction, Tayari Jones. How does she figure into Just Right Jillian? <laughs> Tiari is a local author here in Atlanta. Really, I had the opportunity to witness her from afar and attend a few of her book signings. And the thing that I noticed about her, she always advocated for people to write regardless of their circumstances. Um, And this is important because a lot of times people have impressions of authors that that all they do is write and that you have to have, you know, be basically be independently wealthy or have a partner who supports you. And that is true of a lot of writers, but she maintained that you can take an alternate path. 
you can work full time and have to squeeze your writing in at other times. If you have a story to tell, just tell it. And for me, I worked full time while I was writing Jillian and worked on my next novel full time during the pandemic. And I always heard her in my ear that it was okay that I could only write on Saturdays. Um, it was okay that I could only write for this period of time. And yes, it would take longer. And that was fine too. I just think that's re really important. And it also, you know, kind of speaks to this overall idea that everybody's path isn't the same and that's fine. As long as you're putting forth your efforts and taking your next step towards your goal, that's the important part. Atlanta author Nicole D. Collier. More information about her middle grade novel, Just Write Jillian, can be found on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, our series Speaking of the Arts, today featuring interdisciplinary artist Rose N. Barron. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. I'm Rose M. Barron, an interdisciplinary artist working in the mediums of installation, photography, performance, and ceramic sculpture. I create multi-sensory art that includes visual, sound, tactile, and sometimes scent from the locations where I photographed. Most viewers react that it gives them a feeling of nostalgia or wonder. My work is centered around the themes of womanhood and identity. Drawing upon my own life experiences, I explore additional themes of emotions, fears, and memories through the feminine mystique. I've been making art as long as I can remember. I came from an artistic family. My grandmother was quite gifted musically, and I grew up spending a lot of time with my older sister, who was a visual artist. Most of my family had artistic talent. I was an art major throughout high school, college, and then on into grad school after a period of pursuing a modeling and acting career, but something was missing. And that was the hands-on experience and the process of creating visual art. My work is performative in nature and is inspired by mythology, folklore, rituals, culture, my ancestry, and our connection to nature. I'm drawn to nature, specifically the water element and its healing powers. Like dreams, water is also a symbol for the subconscious, as well as female intuitiveness, fertility, and new beginnings of life. Originally from the Midwest, but I've called Atlanta my home since moving here after graduating from college. My work takes inspiration from the landscape and architecture in the Southern United States. Atlanta has a rich history of historic neighborhoods where waters such as creeks, lakes, and rivers were such an important element, such as Grant Park, which originally housed five springs and water sources, including Lake Albana, which was drained in the 1960s. Atlanta has so many places to see new art. The public art scene has increased thanks to the support of the City of Atlanta Cultural Affairs. There's places such as Art on the Beltline and numerous art murals throughout the city. I also enjoy trips to the High Museum of Art, the Museum of Contemporary Art of Georgia, the Atlanta Contemporary, and numerous art galleries around the city, such as White Space Gallery, Poem 88, Marsha Woods Gallery, and 378 Gallery. And not to be overlooked are institutions and notable art education venues such as SCAD Atlanta. I find getting out to see others' art to be inspirational in both my production of art as well as my thinking about new ways to present my artwork. Currently, I have a large-scale photography piece titled Ma Petite Pomme and the permanent collection at the Museum of Contemporary Art of Georgia. 
and a painting titled Before the Storm in the collection of Fulton County's Department of Arts and Culture's Fine Art Acquisition Program. Interdisciplinary artist Rose M. Barrett and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information on Barron's work can be found on our website, wabe.org. Finally, today, happy belated birthday to former Atlanta mayor and Ambassador Andrew Young, the politician, diplomat, and activist turned 90 over the weekend. Beginning his career as a pastor, Young was an early leader in the civil rights movement and was nearby when an assassin's bullet fatally wounded his friend and mentor, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Andrew Young would go on to become the first black person from Georgia elected to Congress and President Jimmy Carter later appointed him ambassador to the United Nations. All of this before he became mayor of Atlanta. This past Wednesday, Mr. Young stood at the pulpit of First Congregational Church in downtown Atlanta, wearing a blue and yellow necktie to honor the people of Ukraine. He said he wished that the kingdom of God would find its way into the heart of Vladimir Putin, and he described the challenge of the moment as loving those who are unlovable. Happy 90th birthday, Andrew Young, with thanks for heroic activism and lifelong work for civil and human rights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Théâtre du Rêve's current streaming performance of Code Noir, The Adventures of the First Count of Monte Cristo. Plus, members of the legendary rap band Nappy Roots stop by and share the story behind their new Castleberry Hill Brewery, Atlantucky. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.